Well, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere in the pews around you. And the last section of Luke chapter 2, which we'll read this morning, is on page 858 of that pew Bible. Luke chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 41 momentarily. Uh, For those of you who are members of Gray Road, I just want to remind you that next Sunday evening, we have a members meeting at 5.30 right here in the auditorium. We will sing uh, some praise together, and then we will look uh, at uh, the the ministries that God has given us and and do all of the, the regular business. If you are not a member, maybe you've been coming along for a while, maybe this is your first time and you would want to know more about us, we have our Discovering Church membership class begins on Wednesday, February 7th. Uh, it will be four consecutive Wednesday evenings. Uh, and so if you want to be part of that, we would appreciate it if you would either contact the church office or use the QR code in the bulletin in order to, uh, to sign up for that so we know how to prepare. All right? You don't have to join the church if you come to the class, but if you are hoping to join the church... You must take the class at some point. You see the difference there. Uh, so I hope that you will come if you're, uh, if you're new to us. I would love to meet you. Those who uh, write biographies of important and influential people often look for insight into the person they write about in the early years of their lives. You know, what shaped the people who shape history? That kind of question. And it's interesting, in all of the writing about Jesus that we have here in the Bible, there is only one scene from his childhood days. Once you get past his birth, we have one scene. And actually, we gain insight on Jesus from this account of him as a boy. So let's, uh, let's read together. I will read Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. The Spirit of God says this, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress." And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray together.
ask for the Lord's help. We come to you, our great God and Father, because you first came to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at this account of his life, we pray by your Spirit that you will give us understanding and faith. Help us to see him, to love him, to trust him, to know him more fully. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, reading an account like this, no doubt if I said uh, any questions to begin, several hands would go up. Uh, How did this happen? Who is to blame for this separation? How can Mary and Joseph not know their son is missing? About 20 years ago, I took a group of teenagers, a, a youth choir from the church I was serving, to Minneapolis on a mission trip, and we did evangelistic work every morning alongside an inner city church, and then in the afternoons the choir would perform and students would give testimonies and the gospel would be shared at different places in the city. One morning an eighth grader who was with us named Ethan decided he didn't want to get up early. He didn't want to go sing, go work all morning and sing all afternoon. So he decided he would stay in bed and see if anybody would notice. And nobody did. We got on the bus and I asked two different adults to make a count of the students to make sure we had everyone. And do you know, they both got the right number. And we left for the morning. And it wasn't until we came back, because we were divided up into small groups, it wasn't until we came back after lunch that we realized what had happened. Now, in that case, Ethan was just a devious little eighth grade boy, and we fell down on the job. It was not a great day in youth ministry for me. And I want to tell you, Ethan's mother was none too happy when we got back And she heard that story. She wasn't happy with Ethan, and she was not happy with me. And stories like that, quite frankly, aren't all that uncommon. I think uh, I I remember John Colbert saying they left one of their ten kids at a rest stop one time and drove down the road and eventually remembered and went back. When you have ten kids, you know, 90% is a B, right? I mean, that's, that's okay. So... You know, children slipping away, parents losing track, and we all want to know what was the story, right? How did that kind of thing happen? Well, in this separation of Jesus from his parents, people have suggested different possibilities of maybe this happened or that happened or whatever happened, but Luke doesn't actually give us a great uh, insight into how, just that it happened. Um, And in case you've heard other messages, this is not actually a text about family relationships, It's not a text about parenting at all. It's a text about Jesus. And so, I do want to make one thing clear. Jesus is not rebelling against His parents here. Look at verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Now, 
Luke could have just said he went with them to Nazareth. Why does he say he was submissive? Because he wants to be clear, Jesus is not a devious little boy. He is not disobedient, and that matters because a Jesus who disobeys, even as a boy, is a Jesus we can ignore and dismiss. A disobedient Jesus can't be our Savior. Only a sinless Jesus can be our substitute. Only a sinless Jesus can offer a perfect sacrifice. Only a sinless Jesus can make us right with God. And so Luke makes that clear. He wasn't devious. He wasn't disobedient. He was submissive. Jesus' holiness has not been compromised. I mean, in one sense, Jesus is like all the other children. You see in verse 52, He grew in, in stature and wisdom and in favor with God and man. He grows up. He gets stronger. He gets older. He learns. He grows. But He is not like other children as well. He's not a sinner. And while that is an extremely important theological point, it is not Luke's main point here just to say that Jesus was sinless in this account. The point isn't how Jesus ends up in the temple or even His innocence so much as it's what happens while He's in the temple. That's where the bulk of the text takes us. And so I just want you to see two things as we come. First, the response to Jesus, and then the words of Jesus, okay? So first, the response to Jesus. The text begins, uh, as we've already seen in our study of Luke, Mary and Joseph are faithful. They go to Jerusalem when they're supposed to for taking Jesus to the temple, for the different festivals that they're supposed to go to. They are faithful. But as they leave to travel home... They come to realize that 12-year-old Jesus is not with them. And, and notice the word that Mary uses to describe their response at the end of verse 48. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Great distress. It wasn't like, uh, it was, it wasn't like leave it to the beaver, you know. Oh, there goes beaver again, you know, just running off and doing his thing. It wasn't like that at all. Panic sets in. Any parent can know that, right? You understand that. Great distress. That happens when you're separated for a few minutes at a mall or a zoo, but imagine the whole day has gone by and you've assumed He's with you, which would normally happen, but it didn't happen this time. The tears, the uncertainty, the agony, all of this. And so they travel back to Jerusalem and they eventually find Him. Verse 46, after three days... Can you even imagine? This 12-year-old didn't have a cell phone. Where are you? Three days. Found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And his, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. He's just sitting there. He's not curled up in a corner crying. He's not panicking. He's not worried. We have no words that tell us that when he, if, he, if he went out to look for them at some point, he's just sitting there. 
And he's participating in the discussion, this Q&A. Now, these question and answers are, were in a very important way of teaching in Jewish education. I mean, just think about your Old Testament, right? Exodus 12, the Bible tells us that children are going to ask what the Passover means. Exodus 13, children are going to ask why the firstborn males and the firstborn animals belong to God. In Deuteronomy 6, children are going to ask what's behind these commands of God. In Joshua chapter 4, children will ask, why is this memorial of stone set up here next to the river? And parents must be ready to answer. I mean, it's the same today, isn't it? Parents are bombarded with questions. What is this? What is that? Where are we going? How are we going to get there? Why is it that way? How did this come about? How did that happen? How did they decide to name that that? How'd they, and just question after question after question. But we as parents shouldn't be exasperated with this. This is actually how our children learn. What is this? Why do I have to clean my room? Why should I always obey? In fact, one of the ways you can tell that your children are growing is in the nature of the questions that they ask. What are they seeking to understand? And here in the temple, 12-year-old Jesus is asking mature questions. He's even answering. Did you hear that? He's answering some questions. Uh, and everyone there knows there's something special about him. Now, Jesus is not putting himself forward as a teacher here. He's not arrogant. He's not a know-it-all. He's not that kid on Polar Express that seems to know everything about everything, including the make and model of the train that they're riding. He's not a know-it-all, but he has insight beyond any ordinary 12-year-old. Notice how the people respond to him in verse 47. All who heard him were amazed. When his parents saw him, they were astounded. They can hardly believe what they are hearing. These words of wisdom, these wise questions coming from a mere boy, I mean, their jaws are on the floor. But in truth, Jesus is only getting started in amazing people and astonishing people. I mean, many people come to the conclusion that even without, without obviously without reading the, the Gospels, that all Jesus ever really talked about was love. Uh, love your neighbor, love your enemy, love one another. And Jesus did say those things, and they are tremendously important for us to hear because we don't naturally love our enemies. We don't naturally love our neighbor as ourself. We love our neighbor as a neighbor who's over there, and if I can do something, that's fine, and if I can't, that's okay. But Jesus goes about, and he doesn't just talk about love. Listen to some of the things that Jesus says just in the Gospel of Luke. Blessed are you when people hate you. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, if those kinds of words from Jesus do not amaze you, if they do not astonish you, if they do not leave you with your mind boggled, then either you're not listening or your heart is hardened to Jesus, or if you are a Christian, you have just heard those so many times, you have forgotten the real impact of them. These are astounding things that Jesus says. And everyone in the temple, just in this Q&A session, is amazed. That's the response, amazement. But I want to be very clear on something. Being amazed does not mean that they have faith. Okay? Being amazed at Jesus is not the same as having faith in Jesus. Being amazed means He's blown your mind. Having faith means He's captured your heart. Let me give you an example. Just flip forward in Luke's gospel to Luke chapter 8. Jesus is in the boat on the water with His disciples. Things are going crazy. The weather is nuts. They come to Him asking for help, and He calms the sea with a word. And then in verse 35, listen to what He says and how Luke describes them. Jesus said to them, where is your what? Faith. And they were afraid, and they marveled. You see? They are amazed at what just happened. They are astonished. Their jaw is on the floor here on this boat because of what Jesus did. But what is that not? Faith. It is simply them being amazed at the power that Jesus has displayed here. They have no faith, but they do Marvel. So, friend, I just want to encourage you, do not settle for being amazed at Jesus. Don't assume that because you are intellectually stimulated by the Bible or by theology, you must be a Christian. Actually, that sounds like a pretty good strategy for the devil, doesn't it? To convince people, if they're amazed by the Bible, if they're amazed by Jesus, if they find Him compelling boy, then they must be Christians. Well, friend, don't be deceived, because if that's you, I want to be very clear, you are not a Christian. Simply being amazed at Jesus does not make one a Christian. I am thankful that you're interested. I'm thankful that you're amazed. I mean, Jesus is amazing, and He does amazing things, and He says amazing things. But don't settle for that. On the last day, when you stand before God, God isn't going to ask you how interested you were in Jesus. He's not going to ask you how amazed you were by what He did in healing people, how astonished you were at His teaching. He will not ask you that. If He is to ask you anything, it would be, what did you do with Jesus? Did you trust Him? Did you take hold of Him? 
Did you count on him to save you? Did you follow him? Friend, amazement does not save you. Faith does. And you and I both have friends who we would say, oh, they can quote the Bible forwards and backwards and they can talk about anything and they really get revved up if you talk to them about uh, uh, God or Christ or sin or the world or morality. They really get revved up. I mean, I, I actually know pastors like this. I don't know whether they're believers. I don't assume they're not. But the thing that really tickles them is, is only when they can get down into some bit of the Greek language that they think nobody else has ever seen or ever known. If you could just see what I see, you'd be the most amazed person that there is. Well, I don't want you to be the most amazed person. And if you've been listening to me preach for very long, you'll know it's not that amazing. I don't want you to be amazed. I want you to believe. Because amazement won't mean a hill of beans on the last day. And so we shouldn't think it means a hill of beans now. You don't need to be intrigued with Christ. You need to be in Christ. What does that mean for us as a church? Well, it means that our goal actually isn't to amaze people. It's not to amaze people with our service. It's not to amaze people with our music. It's not to amaze people with our teaching. It's not to amaze people with our programs. And and as you look around, surely this seems to be the goal of so many churches, but it shouldn't be any of our goals. Our goal is to point the world to the Savior of the world so they'll be saved. And besides all that, I mean, amazement actually doesn't last, does it? I mean, if you watched the football games just yesterday, right? If you were amazed at uh, the, the, whoever it was that played last night, the Packers and the 49ers, right? And you're like amazed at this and amazed at that and amazed at that. How are you feeling about today? You're not even thinking about it. Why? Because amazement just fades. Even if your team wins, which neither you nor I can say that about our teams for quite some time. However, when you're, even when your team wins and you're amazed at the season, you know what happens? It becomes March and... Okay. What's next? What's next year? We're already thinking repeat, three-peat. All those things. Amazement with everything doesn't last. Amazement with Jesus certainly doesn't last, and the amazement in these teachers won't last because Jesus is going to grow up, and He's going to say things that are much more amazing and much more astonishing and much more God-glorifying than this, and do you know they won't be amazed? They will be enraged, and they will plot to kill Him. Don't settle for being amazed. That is the response to Jesus, though. Secondly, the words of Jesus. Now, you may not have thought about this. I'm not sure that I had, though it, I should have probably at some point in my life, to know that verse 49 are the first recorded words that we have of Jesus. Now, we don't know what His first words were, right? We don't know if He said Mama or Dada first. That was the big competition in our home, especially with our first child. You know, is He going to say mama or dada first and do you know that stubborn boy said ball I tell you what he's not even an athlete he just said ball and after all the things I promised him if he would say dada first he didn't do it 
But we don't know what Jesus' first words were. You know why we don't know? Because it don't matter. It doesn't inform our faith. These words inform our faith. And so we need to hear what it is that Jesus is saying here at 12 years old. He says to his mother after being asked, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I'm not convinced that that's a rebuke. I just think Jesus is saying, where else exactly would I be? This is the only place that makes sense. And I think if we just reflect on his words for a minute, we'll see why Luke would have included them in his account. The first thing I want you to see about his words is that they speak to his identity. They speak to his identity. Jesus says... I must be in my Father's house. Now, some of you may have the King James Version in front of you. And you see that it says, I must be about my Father's business. Or maybe you remember reading the King James, and you remember it saying that. And so what you'd like to do is go off into a corner and talk about whether it is house or whether it is business. Is it house or is it business? This is the great thing that we must settle. Well, somebody's I mean, nobody's settled it yet. They keep saying one thing or the other. The thing that actually draws the eye shouldn't be the business or the house. It's what comes before it. Didn't you know that I should be in my father's house? About my father's business. Do you know why that's really striking? Is because in verse 48, do you look down at verse 48? And what is it that Mary says? Your father and I have been searching. And what is Jesus' answer? Do you not know that I should be in my Father's house? Now, Jesus isn't denying Joseph or Joseph's place in his life. He's simply saying that he has a unique relationship to God. God is his Father. And this is incredible. Now, to our modern ears, to our New Testament-saturated ears, it may not sound all that incredible because people are always talking about God in terms of fatherliness, right? My Father, my Father. God is my Father. And that is not a wrong way to speak of God, but in that day with only the Old Testament uh, informing everything, That would sound really unusual. Do you know why? Because nobody does it. Moses didn't do it, and he saw God in the burning bush. Isaiah doesn't do it. David doesn't do it. Solomon, who built the temple, doesn't do it. God is referred to as a father. He's even referred to as our father. But this, this isn't that. This is Jesus saying, my father's house. If you need help understanding why that's so important, just look at their response in verse 50. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. If everybody was walking around saying the temple is my father's house, the temple is my father's house, they wouldn't be confused about it. He would just be using another phrase to speak about the temple. But the fact of the matter is they are confused. They have no clue why he is talking like this. It doesn't make any sense. Now, in in reality, for Mary and Joseph, this should ring some bells for them, shouldn't it? You remember what happened at Jesus' birth? Angelic announcements 
about him. Prophetic words about him. Angels sing to him. Magi visit to worship him. He is going to be called Son of the Most High, Lord, King, Savior. It was truly amazing. But it's been 12 years. And apparently, unlike all the extra-biblical stories about Jesus childhood, they've been pretty normal years. Jesus didn't fashion pigeons out of clay and make them come alive, apparently. You think they'd ever forget that? They were just years of work, years of raising Jesus, years of taking Him to synagogue, years of training Him in the carpentry trade. And the daily grind must have drowned out the memories of those magnificent words around his birth because Joseph and Mary aren't connecting the dots. Oh, wait, the angel said he would be called Son of the Most High. And now he's saying, I must be in my Father's house. And yet those words, my Father, speak of who he is, of his identity. But his words don't just speak of his identity. His words also speak to his purpose. Now, of course, the fullness of Jesus' mission and all that he came to do is not revealed here. There isn't, there isn't, but there is a little hint that his life is a life of purpose. And it's in this little word in verse 49, must. I must be in my Father's house. In other words, it is necessary for me to go. The Greek word is day. And the idea is of being compelled to do something. And when Luke uses the word, he is speaking of something that is necessary because it is God's will. Now, I don't often quote the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament uh, here in the pulpit, but these words are so very helpful in understanding why Luke might have chosen this word. Okay, now I'm going to say divine necessity where that Greek word appears in the text because I don't want you to get confused. So listen to what is in there. Over, over Jesus, there stands a divine necessity which is already present in His childhood. It determines his activity. It leads him to suffering and death, but also to glory. It has its basis in the will of God concerning him, which is laid down in Scripture and which he unconditionally follows. The whole of God's will for Christ is thus comprehended by this divine necessity as Luke conceives it. In other words, Luke didn't just go into a vocabulary hat and pull out must. This word speaks clearly about the entire life of purpose for Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus will say, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for that purpose. Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
And even after His resurrection, as the angels are explaining to the women who come to the tomb what has happened, this is what they say, He is not here but has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And that's just three examples. Jesus' life was a life of purpose. One must after another. He did not come to do His own will, but the will of Him who sent Him. And so here in Luke 2, I mean, Jesus' teaching ministry and His healing ministry and the climax of His mission, His death and resurrection, are still years away. And yet His identity and the beginnings of His purpose are already laid out for us. Jesus, the Son of God, must do God's will. He must preach. He must die. He must rise again. In other words, He must be our Savior, the Savior of the world, of all who believe in Him. And it's wonderful that He must be our Savior because apart from Him, we have no Savior. In fact, the Apostle Peter says as much when he's facing off with some religious uh, leaders in his day after the Holy Spirit has come in Acts chapter 4. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Did you hear that? Same word. No other name by which we must be saved. If we are going to be saved, then believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus' death for us, this is what we must do. This, in other words, is God's will that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved and none other. That is why we send people to the ends of the earth, because no other name there isn't some secret name under which Jesus' name is kind of hiding out. It must be the proclamation of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we proclaim because that is the only good news that there is because His is the only name by which we must be saved. Friend, there is no other way. You must come to Jesus. Will you? Let's pray. Our great God and Father, how we thank you for these words, for this scene from Jesus' life. Lord, we pray that while we are rightly amazed at Him and astonished by many things He says, and while we marvel at Him, God, keep us from settling for mere amazement. And God, we pray that You would give us grace to hear, to hear Jesus' words, to hear words that speak of His identity as the Son of God.
and his purpose to do the Father's will. How we thank you for Jesus, the only Savior of the world, our only hope. We thank you that because our sinless Savior died, our sinful souls are counted free. Help us to live for him, to follow him this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.